Hello, and here we are again with another APW Property Podcast and another mosey around the market with a look back at July. APW advises buyers from all over the world on buying property in the UK. They've been helping investors for over 30 years, and they're very happy to share their accrued knowledge through various outlets, such as their website, YouTube channel, brochures, and this podcast. With me to discuss what went on in the property market last month are APW property pundits, Stuart and Callum Williamson. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Paul. And hello, Callum. Hi, Paul. My name's Paul Shearer, writer and journalist, and I've been involved in property for the last 15 years, writing for broadsheet newspapers and for property companies such as GVA, Capita, IPSX and GLP. A lot of initials there. Stuart's market wrap goes out weekly on YouTube. So, Stuart, tell us what you noticed in July. Um, There's a lot of uh, talk out in the marketplace about rising interest rates and the effect that it'll have on the UK property market. There's a certain amount of hysteria basically saying rates will go up, there'll be a market crash, when in reality, historically, rates are still at a very low point. And with the change of corporation and global governments, global economies, it's unlikely that we're going to have any of that sort of thing going on. There's less than a 10% chance that we'll have more than a 10% correction. So really, that's the main headline this this week has been, or this month has really been the uh, interest rate rises and the fact we've probably got a couple more going. The US has just increased their rates. So that is what a lot of the pundits and a lot of clients are talking about. Okay, yeah. So we're recording this. Um, it's probably likely that the Bank of England is going to raise interest rates tomorrow. Um, we're recording this the day before. So uh, uh, yes, but rising interest rates. Um, anything else putting pressure on the market? Well, certainly the, the war in Ukraine is obviously a terribly sad thing. And it's putting a lot of pressure on fuel and food prices, logistical issues. So that is a lot in the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Okay, so you're saying that um, interest rates are going to, they will rise, but they're still very much affordable for the foreseeable future. Yes, they will go up. I mean, in our most recent market wrap, we took the Knight Frank report, and basically their view is that interest rates will probably peak at under 3% in the middle of 2023. And by the end of next year, they'll actually be falling again. And that has been priced into the market by the swap prices or interest rates, which have already already started to fall at that point in the the future. Okay, and there'll be a new inflation report tomorrow, which we might look at in our market mosey in September. So if money remains relatively cheap, uh, you think overall this supports house prices? It's not just house prices being supported by cheap money. It's a, a lack of lack of supply. You know, the demand is still there. So cheap money, lack of supply, are changing the demographic. Still 30% of people working from home. That's just the way it is. And I think that probably is going to be a large amount of the future. Um, I don't know if you saw, Callum, the article in The Times uh, by Fred Harrison, who I know you're a fan of. He's the man who came up with the 18-year property cycle. What did you make of his prediction that there will be a price correction next year? Well, I mean, I didn't I didn't get a chance to read that specific article, but I did actually read his book, uh, which, it, you know, in that book he predicted the 2008 housing market crash and the crash before that as well. So, I think what he was saying is 2026, we will see another major crash, which 
you know, looking at previous cycles, which he's predicted correct, uh, you know, would hold true. So, you know, you've got to give him the benefit of the doubt on that as, as well. You know, as Stuart said, it's a supply and demand issue. You know, we're reaching the point in the cycle where demand is very, very high and supply is low, as, as we'll come on to a bit later. You know, Savills, Knight Frank, they all mentioned this uh, supply-demand imbalance. So what do I think of his prediction? It could be true. It, you know, it may not be true. We, we need to do our own research and sort of make decisions off the back of that, I think. Okay, well, just to um, to give him his credit, uh, the book is called Boom Bust, House Prices, Banking and the Depression of 2010. Uh, and that's by Fred Harrison, author of Ricardo's Law. Uh, he's just produced another book as well, which is called We Are Rent. Uh, there's a couple of videos on our YouTube for people that like to watch videos, if you go and check those out, where Stu's done a market wrap on the 18-year property cycle, and I did a video uh, going through each of the stages. So if anyone would like to watch a video on it, they can go and check it out there. Can you remember those stages? Or- yeah, so you've, it's broken down into after the crash, you have a four-year sort of recovery phase, um, which would have been 2008 to 2012 in the last cycle. Then you have what's known as the first of the seven-year growth phases. Then you have a mid-cycle wobble. And then you have the last, uh, the second of the seven-year growth phases, which is known as the explosive phase. And if you look at the figures based on the last cycle, you know, we are in that explosive phase now. You know, house prices growing at 10% plus each year. It was the same in the build-up to the last one. But this time around, you know, we've got COVID, we've got high inflation. These are things we didn't have last time around. So perhaps they'll distort it. You know, perhaps old Fred will be wrong this time around. Well, in the article, he says no. He says no, that, that COVID won't make any difference. But um, to give him a, the interesting thing about that idea of the cycle is that it does make a, a psychological sense with people being cautious after a crash and waiting and the banks being extremely cautious. And then people do get back in, but then they worry. And then suddenly they think, oh, no, I've got to be on the property ladder and everything goes crazy. So there is a kind of psychological sense to it. And there is a. it's driven by people's demand force something in this case houses uh, which is the subject we're going to come on to now which is these supply and demand issues and let's see if we can work out what is happening from the latest reports we've got right move report for july we've got some ons data the ricks report uh you mentioned knight frank and savills i know you're across most of these reports all the time uh, but what i wanted to try and do is get some sense of what's going on behind the headline numbers right move has it that how uh, that prices have risen to an all-time high for the sixth consecutive month um so why is this uh stuart i think it just goes back to the original point about supply and demand you know supply is slowly coming back um but there's still a huge demand there there's not enough property being built and the sort of property that people want now is different than it was perhaps 10 years ago and we can sell as much uh, studio apartments or one bed apartments in city centers as we can and we can sell as many three or four bed houses out in the country, but it's the suburbs and the in-between properties that are really struggling. So it's a change in the whole socio-economic profile, I think. I don't think it's the complete change forever, you know, but it certainly is in this part of the cycle, it would appear to be the case. So yeah, I still think, um, you know, as as Stuart said, we should support, we should start a supply and demand count, see how many times we say it in this episode, but um, I got an email from Savills last night it was their monthly roundup so that's the the 3rd of August for the people listening to it next week and that's exactly what they said you know they've said 
there are signs of, of moderating demand as reported in the last RICS residential market survey from last month, which showed new buyer inquiries moving further into negative territory, albeit from a very high level. So perhaps slightly lower demand, but still high f- for normal. And then they're going to say that said the current levels of sales activity continue to absorb the limited supply coming to the market. So there's still more than enough demand to meet the supply that we've actually got. Stuart, you mentioned not enough houses being built. How big is the shortfall? What's happening in the house building market? Well, I do believe we're supposed to be building, or the government target is 300,000 per year. Uh, In 2021, I believe it was 238,000, at 8% increase on a year previously, uh, but the 6% below the 2019 to 2020 peak. So basically... We should be building 300,000, although there's a report in the Financial Times last week that suggested 500,000 would be a lot close to the figure with the net immigration that's going to start again post the Brexit and post the Ukrainian war. Okay, so not enough houses being built, which then obviously increases, or that's the the shortage of supply, which is going to affect the house prices. Um, What I think of as being these headline figures there's another thing that is a statistical quirk that goes on in them which is when they put at the annual rate in there was something in uh, one report i read which said that the rise currently or the slowdown in the rate of rise was because there was a mid july june july wobble last year where prices went down so the things that happen a year ago in an exact month can affect the statistical rate now Uh, and the actual headline rate. So always take some of these figures with a bit of caution and look at their methodologies and see if you you can make out what's going on. There's an analogy that I like to think of, which is if you look at the sea surface, so you think of house prices as being on the sea surface. Now, you've got the tide going up and down, which is going to be a massive macroeconomic shift in in the the economy, a depression or a boom. Uh, You've got waves coming in, which can be these kind of trends and fashions and little ideas which are driving regional and local markets but then on top of those waves you've got little up and downs you've got little ripples which is why even in a recession a particular street can still be fashionable because it might be that that street is where all of the international multi-billionaires want to live and they're just going to be completely unaffected by what's going on in the rest of the world and if you've got too many of them chasing property in a particular street then house prices in that street say it was bishop's avenue are going to go up you might not like the kind of people who are buying there, but um, that's the way it goes. So you've got these three different things. You've got the tide, the waves, and then these little ripple effects, which can have effects on prices all over the place. Looking at the reports, are there any of those regional trends and, and little quirks? You mentioned one-bed flats and three-bed houses. Are there any other things that you can spot from the figures that you think are interesting or that, that piqued your interest? For sure. If we just... Before going on to that, just to go back to the the analogy about 2010, Fred Harrison. I mean, the market correction that happened in 2008, you know, was over by 2014. House prices were back above where they were previously. So this could fall into the same sea surface analogy. The tide's gone out for a while, but it will come back and it'll come back better than it did before. And history has taught us that the house prices will continue to go up because they are a good investment, and in places specifically like the UK where they're not making land anymore, you know, 
is only a limited amount of space for you to build on. So we're not going to get a long-term correction of house prices falling for forever and a day. There's a very nice Warren Buffet quote about the tide, which is, uh, when the tide goes out, you find out who's been swimming without any shorts. It's true. And I think I thought it was, when a tide goes out, you find out who's been swimming naked. Oh, well, the polite version there is without any shorts, yes. I think just to add to your point there as well, I think, um, you know, if you're if you're buying well, even if you buy before a crash or a correction, if you're buying well in a, in a place that's still got solid fundamentals, people are going to still need to live there. So it's not going to be massively impacted. You know, if you buy poorly uh, before in, in what's known as, say, the winner's curse, as Fred Harrison calls it, the two years before a correction, if you buy poorly, then somewhere that's already overinflated because there's a hype around it in a location that's not underpinned by these fundamentals, then that's going to be impacted a lot more. You know, So if you're still doing your research and buying in proper locations, even with a correction, you shouldn't be impacted as badly, you know, as big as you would if you bought poorly. So buy well, do your research, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. And, and it's, sort of, it's also a case of what are you going to do with that property? I mean, if you're buying to get a, a, in a good ties environment, transport infrastructure, employment environment, for example, like Reading we're doing at the moment, or in Birmingham, you know, you have good employment, you have good transport links, you've got the HS2 coming up and that's still going to be bringing people up north and allowing people to live up north and get down south in 45 minutes. So leveling up will continue and those sort of things will work. But if you're not buying for those strong fundamentals, and it is, you know, the winner's curse. That could well happen. One more to go off on a bit more of a tangent there. Again, you know, it's why are you buying? You know, a lot of people with property get caught up in the old capital appreciation hype, which, yes, is a really big part of it. But for me personally, it's all about the rental income and is it going to pay itself off over time? And despite there being a market correction with property, again, if you've bought well, you know, people still, or even if you haven't bought well, people still need places to live. And so they're still going to be paying you an income and rental income. So you're still, even if your property price goes down, which will only impact you if you sell it, you know, you'll still be getting the rental income. So, you know, it's still, it's still a good thing. Speaking of rental in- income, there was obviously articles about London's bounce back, which uh, said London rents have now reached an eye-watering new record average asking price of £2,257 per month during the last quarter, according to Britain's largest online property site, Right Move. So, yes, this rental uh, bounce back. Anything else in the figures that you've noticed in, in terms of rental? Yeah, I think in the, um, the East and West Midlands, they're talking about, according to Jones Lang Cell. Over the next five years, rentals going up by 20%. And so those strong, cheaper areas at the moment that are underpinned by the ties approach in transport infrastructure, employment, you know, they will do well. Also, city centers, you know, a lot of the big city centers are getting a bounce back, but they're really just making up for where they were before and catching up to the prices where they should have been if they hadn't been COVIDized for 18 months. So that's really, I think, our view. But onto the point about what are the sort of things we're seeing? I mean, we're still seeing people, as I mentioned, wanting to be out of town to live in their castles where they're safe from COVID because, you know, this thing will come back again. And, you know, people want to be prepared now and not be caught out in the same way. So if you've got your garden with a fence around it, a bit of land, 
You've got your spare room that you can work out of. Your kids are secure. That's what people are looking for, their, their castles. And then when they get into town, it's a case of getting in, doing the work, and then popping out again, just calling it a day. So those sort of things. And then secondly, energy efficiency. You know, with bills, you know, the energy cap apparently is going to go up to 500 pounds a month by the end of this year. I mean, that is horrendous for a lot of people. So energy efficiency is very important to make sure that we are keeping those costs down and buying properties that are going to not cost us an arm and leg to run. It's like, you know, you buy a great car. If it costs you a heap to run, it's no point. You can't afford to run it. So you need to have an efficient home. And that's one of the, the major points. Good commuter locations, small properties in the cities. That's the, the view as far as I can see it. There was an interesting thing that I learned from the Grosvenor estate um, when I was talking about property in London. So they were talking about Mayfair in particular and also Eaton Square. Immediately after the war, they actually couldn't give them away. No one wanted to be in town. Uh, Eaton Square was you know, impossible to rent. So they were giving them to anyone who would rent it and they gave it on very very long-term leases 50 years so those leases only then came up and reverted back to the estate following on from about 1990 and as those leases reverted the Grosvenor estate realized that they could you know do up the property and then sell it or do something different with it uh, which then led to the rise of Mayfair going back up to the international sort of super league that it is now and that was then true across a lot of the Grosvenor Estate in Belgravia as well and Eaton Square. But uh, looking back at this rental, it's obviously a new sector that's being created is this build-to-rent sector from developers. And there was an article in Property Week which had some interesting figures there. So the market for single-family housing is also a growth area driven by changing household types and renter preferences and is huge at an estimated 2.9 million households. This market is only going to grow as the number of households increase and economic pressures make it harder to become a first-time buyer. At the other end of the age scale, renters are getting older. The numbers renting homes aged between 45 to 54 have risen by 50% in 10 years and those renting aged 55 to 64 have more than doubled, up 111% over the decade. So... Yes, there are more people renting, which is then that feeds into the demand cycle, which means that uh, those rental prices are only going to go up. But they can only go up so much because obviously people are struggling to pay, as you say, Stuart, the the heating bills as well as the actual rent on their property. If, yeah, if you look at you know the, how wages are increasing, there's strikes on at the moment for eight percent, ten percent plus. You know, wages are going to increase. Is a huge shortage of, of labour in the UK. So because there's that competition going on, that will push wages up. So wages will be continue to go up, and this is one of the hopefully saving graces of the UK market. So as people's incomes go up, they'll be able to afford the more expensive property. Unless, of course, it's all being spent on food and energy costs, which is obviously not very good at all. And I've got a uh, just one point i think would be worth mentioning some of these big research houses have actually revised up their growth figures slightly coming into the end of the year because of the uh, changes to mortgage stress testing so this doesn't necessarily impact our uh, you know investors buying in the uk from overseas that are on buy to let mortgages but residential buyers in the uk which obviously is a large portion of people that are uh, driving the demand in the uk 
changes to that mortgage stress testing meaning mean that people can now borrow i think it's five times or 5.5 times their their salary or joint salary even uh, if they're in a relationship so um that's caused some of these people savile's night frank to revise growth slightly for the end of the year so i think that's worth investors and people knowing Yes, we covered that before, wasn't it? The, the Bank of England announced in June following a review that it was going to sc- scrap the mortgage affordability test or that imposition that they placed on lenders uh, to do that stress test for um, applicants for mortgages, which was adding 3% to the interest rate to see if they could still afford it. Uh, that was following a review which they conducted and completed in February. They announced it in June and that came into effect on the 1st of August, which had given the banks time to alter their lending criteria. So it should mean that there are more generous mortgages available. Uh, The banks are also constrained, though, however, by the mortgage conduct of business rules that the Bank of England has over lenders. So um, it shouldn't be a complete runaway um, lending wild west, but uh, keep an eye on those deals because there will be some slightly better deals coming out. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Um, Thanks to Stuart and Callum for their expertise. Uh, So it's goodbye from Stuart. Cheerio. And goodbye from Callum. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me, Paul Shearer. Next week, we're going to be looking at tax through an SPV. So what kind of tax do you pay if you buy property through a limited company? Until then, have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.